0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Town Hall. This is Town Hall number 68. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design. And we're in the United States today. We're talking about how equity, US market, how do they collide, how do they work together. I'm joined here by some of the smartest minds that I know. And the first person I'm going to throw to is Ronnie Peters. Ronnie, you're working on this incredible project with Hyperloop Transport Technologies, as well as others. You must have to think about the equity that people have in the transport service because you're reinventing transportation. You can't just make it for the top one percent. You can't make it for the top five percent. You to make a profitable business will have to go make it work for ninety nine percent of the population, probably ninety nine point nine. Tell me a bit about social equity for you.
1: Right. So on a point to point level, if we think of if we take an example of New York City to Boston and think about equity, uh, there'd be a number of levels to actually look at this. One would be that what we are attempting to do is create an egalitarian transportation system. So the idea is that there is no business class or first class, everybody is treated equally. So I think that that's one sort of factor and to get the price as low as we possibly can, free would be amazing if that was possible, Um, but to be able to give access so that uh, New York City to Boston ride would be the price of a bus ticket. So we're not talking about airplane travel. We're not talking about something that is exclusive, pricing wise. And then from a ride perspective, I'm treated equally to whoever else is is taking that ride with me. So that's from the the sort of costing and the user experience. The interesting thing about it is, is what is it going to do to all of those towns and locations and people and businesses between? New York City and Boston. So if I'm within a vicinity where I can get onto, into a Hyperloop capsule, and 29 minutes later arrive in the other destination, if I had taken that as a car ride, I may have bought gas along the way, I may have bought some food along the way, stopped for dinner, I may have visited a town along the way, done other things, and other people and communities would benefit from that. So what's that gonna be like? It's gonna be like a plane ride where you're flying over So you're traveling through, but you don't stop at those other destinations. So I think there there are gonna be some very interesting dynamics about who has access to a um, station, a Hyperloop station, and and those sort of as the input and output places for transportation. What, What does that do for people who are in between that? And it might be incredibly beneficial. We might get rural areas where you know, tree growth comes back and you know things do actually go back to nature in between because there's less of a human footprint. So I think there'll okay. there'll be some very interesting impacts. Anyway, so yes.
0: Yeah, so so that gets down into some of the execution parts and then what what's the experience mm. going to be. I think the most mm. interesting word that you spoke in that you brought up there was the egalitarian. And egalitarian is is a really interesting idea because. I'm not sure people who are even in egalitarian societies understand that they're in egalitarian societies. I think it's the type of thing you've got to be standing outside and you're trying to go talk about it as as an observer and you can talk about how egalitarian they are. But I thought I lived in an egalitarian society when I was in Australia in my early 20s. I moved to Sweden and I go see a very different version of an egalitarian society. But I had no idea that I was in a version of egalitarian, that, you know, that was actually the Australian version rather than the Swedish version rather than the the American version. And so I think think that's a very interesting observation. But in an egalitarian society, it's not that there's one standard. You know, there's going to be somebody who says, I don't mind actually going into the distressed um, seats on Hyperloop where the people don't turn up, so I'll take a discount ticket. And that's uh, people making that choice. I don't. I, I want to go get a priority seat, so will I buy somebody else's seat because I'll give them a a, a payment to give up their seat so I can go, so they're, they're still in the distress there. And before you know it, you've then got a marketplace, which is then meaning that there's a strata of prices that, that's in there. If you don't do it, the market will do it itself in bidding for the tickets, which is what we found with concert tickets. I, I don't know if you know about... Um, the secondary market for buying and selling concert tickets but you know these companies like Ticketmaster go out and sell the product but then there's people who say well I've got a a ticket to uh, Ariana Grande and who wants to go sit in the front row and all of a sudden people are on selling their ticket so it's not the original merchant and it's a little bit like if you were making a a Swiffer mop, and it was the first batch of Swiffer mops. And then there was a secondary market where people were then collecting the Swiffer mop, and there was now ten thousand dollars for the first batch, which actually had an impurity on the way that the moulding was done. Collectors do that, so so we often the vendor can't go and actually dictate whether there's actually that that multi-tiering pricing. But what you can do is right. design the product so it's actually that that isn't inherent. And I think that's such an interesting investigation about where does the market change things versus where does the design of the system come? Because we know things like apartheid, we know things about um, uh, racial inequality uh, where you had laws of um, the Jim Crow laws, et cetera, in the US. They were hardwired software that said, this is how the system works, and people were discluded, they were excluded. So that's bad. Mm. But you also wind up with some of those effects that happen... Even when you open it up and you have made it an egalitarian design, that a secondary process can turn around and then actually bring in multi tiering pricing.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, think, just, I
0: think it's really interesting that we got to that so quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, sticking to the transportation, there's a really interesting um, uh, sort of model that when the New York City subway system was set up, there was one token. And one price, no matter how far you traveled on the system. Right. And the idea was, and it was done, you know, n- not necessarily for the best possible reasons, but the outcome and the e- egalitarianness of it was fantastic. So you have the most wealthy people living in the most wealthy neighborhoods needing to be serviced by people from the poorest neighborhoods and by giving them access to they didn't have to pay more to come in from the suburbs or from further away they could get to where their jobs were where the higher paying jobs were for the same price as anybody else and somebody just taking a few couple of different subway rides right if i go to the uk for example the last time i remember the further i travel the more i pay right so if i'm very poor and i live way out in the suburbs unfortunately but my best paying job happens to be in the middle of London, I get dinged because I'm having to travel further to get there. And by changing that model in New York City, it meant that completely changed the way people could have access to work and jobs and places and not be penalized for living further away because that's where the cheaper housing was or the communities they lived in.
0: And so that goes into a really interesting part about social equity, And when we're doing research for this, we found all of the documentation around around societal equity was was couched in that it was the responsibility of the public sector governments. What we found is, as as we observed what was happening, corporations seem to be actually, as they've done everywhere, they've scaled up what governments were doing. If you go look at the... Um, the LGBT or gay marriage, LGBTIQ marriage. That push around the world actually got a lot more momentum when corporations around the world said, we actually believe in gay marriage. And so you had these two titans. You had religious groups saying, oh, well, it's against our belief and our standards. And you had corporations saying, well, we embrace this. And then you had politicians who were saying, we now have to listen between these two large entities. And what I observed was that the corporation has more power these days as a collective than religious community groups do. And I I found that that so that was a very liberating moment there. In the last 10 years, I've seen time and time again the term about democratization. That's a democratization of design tools, democratization of innovation tools in there. Dan, you, you've been uh, just giving some little micro smiles as I've been talking about this. What's democratization all about? Because it seems like it's a term, you know, the iPhone isn't a democratized iPhone because there's the, there's the chic version, which is gold plated. And then there's the one that everyone else can buy. And I think there's like 12 phones now in the iPhone range. Is it that the concept of the iPhone is democratizing tools and access as a collective, but there's still stratas inside that? Help me under, try understand a bit about the democratization thing.
2: Yeah, I agree that word is showing up left and right. That word is yeah. showing up a lot. It's about democratizing everything, which probably has good intentions, but the I'm not sure about the real... Um, delivery of democratizing things when you're talking about the iPhone of course it's a super expensive piece of equipment and uh, you know one of the things I notice is that there tends to be a oh there's a very strong tendency for design groups <clears throat> to solve everything with an app and you know we're gonna solve poverty. With an app we're going to solve housing with an app we're going to solve all these things that should be democratized with an app and i'm saying well how many people really have smartphones and are on them constantly like the designers are so uh, it's it's very um i mean you have to take the word democratize with a, with a bit of skepticism to really see one what people mean and two, if it actually is democratising anything. Hmm.
0: And and because I think democratising actually is a nice theoretical concept, but because things change so rapidly, you know, like uh, the shoreline keeps changing and reshaping, democratising feels like it's this fixed state and we've changed the fixed state. Harry, help us out here about from your lens, equity, democratization, corporations, working at economic leverage, how do these things fit together? Or have I just given you a soup where you say, thank you for doing that to me, Mark, I hate you
3: for it. Well, I think, I think it's a soup, but I think it, it's, it's also still being cooked. It's still, we're not quite sure how it's gonna turn out. Um, But as we were talking earlier, I think that one of the phenomena we have seen is that corporations are beginning to take more of a lead on these issues. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's a question of money. So if we think about how um, some of the earliest voices of equity, at least in the United States, um, also in Australia, as I know from uh, prior conversations, um, the trade union movement has played a very important role in that, because there's a um, collective power um, when working people get together and negotiate um, employment conditions, wages, etc. But of course, there's other forms of collective power, such as political power, and we can all get together together um and collectively vote whichever party we feel uh, affiliated with and that will result in government change regulation etc which is another form of collective power resulting in improved or increased equity for those people who are part of that that process um but i I think what we've seen uh, play a very powerful role over the last well, this is not new, this, is, this goes back decades. This probably goes back hundreds of years, mm-hmm. but, but it has become more and more economically powerful is the role of opinion and culture and fashion. Because fashion is, is also just a collectivization of culture. It is when a group of us all agree that wearing a black t-shirt with a bold statement on it is cool
0: for oh, example oh come on you, uh, I, uh, you were pumping me up but you just <laughs> like i yeah.
3: no i it, clearly it is cool and that's a fashion <laughs> statement and <clears throat> and that drives behavior and it drives purchasing and so we've seen this kind of continuum emerge strongly over the last 10 years or so between um, culture and fashion and behavior and purchasing. <laughs> and that's when people really, really begin to pay attention in the business world. And so <clears throat> businesses begin to change their policy, um, their communication, because they want to be part of that, that cycle and they want, they, they want to be bought, just like your t-shirt and, you know, way back in the day, you talked about apartheid in your introduction. Of course, one of the drivers of the um, change in regime in South Africa was the divestment campaigns carried out by um, students at universities all over the world demanding that their college divest from any investment in South Africa and then that kind of spilled over into broader divestment campaigns within companies. And that eventually changed the regime. That was part of it. That's only just you know, just part of it. Um, and and we, we're seeing the same phenomenon now around like the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, etc. And so individuals are forming a collective voice, not through a trade union, not through necessarily direct political action, but changing or affecting purchasing behavior which of course is driving a lot of change amongst those large companies who are, who are affected. And uh, and it's not surprising that the, the companies that you know, are taking the lead in some of these political questions are companies like Twitter and Facebook, which are most directly affected by uh, collective choice, the fashion amongst all of us as we interact with their platforms. So I, I think this is a, a new phenomenon. It's a It's a new type of democracy is not achieved through the ballot box, it's achieved through uh, expressing our opinion um, in social networks, and it's achieved through where we choose to spend our money.
0: Yeah, and and I think uh, I get a great viewpoint of different systems that work in different markets because that's my world. I get that every week. I get to go focus in and say, now I need to understand this conversation in this different construct. I'm fascinated at the way the pandemic has been dealt in different markets because you'd say there's different considerations that have been done everywhere. And I'm going to come to the US and how FEMA has been a game changer in the US. But I'm also, I'm interested how electoral systems work in different countries. And what what interests me is that the FEMA was so rapidly and universally able to get the vaccines out to people in the United States. There actually needs to be a FEMA for your electoral cycle as well because there's all sorts of voter suppression which is about inequality, which is about, you know, the word suppression, it's designed to actually go and decrease participation because you're creating more friction in the system. And in Australia, we have a federal electoral commission which goes and makes sure that it's a, it's a universal process. So there's, there is full franchise, full equity there. In the UK, they've got similar systems there. And so it's interesting from a emergency response perspective in the USA, you've worked out how to put needles in everyone's shoulders uh, so that they can then actually be inoculated against, uh, against this back, uh, the virus but you can't use the same universal thought about making sure that everybody is included from a democratic voting point of view because maybe there's economic leverage for them not to be included would be my thought. And that's why that hasn't come in. Whereas when a tornado hits or when a global warming washes over America or a vaccine washes over, it's a universal pain. And so therefore, collectively we want to go and solve this economic and social disaster that's there so so I find that fascinating at how in certain ways one country will solve something at a universal level others will do it at a cherry picking some people get advantage other people don't get advantage and it's not it's all over the world and at the moment we've got a Example in Sydney, and Julie's joining us from Sydney here. Sydney and New South Wales is one of the um, uh, states in Australia. It's our largest by population, the state. But the policy that they put in there was, they they it looks like they left it about 10 days longer than they should have to respond to the Delta variant. And now they've got a runaway outbreak, whereas the rest of the country has basically at zero levels or heading back to zero levels of infection. And you're saying, well, is that an equitable position that their priority was to go keep businesses open, but at the cost of infecting lots of people who would then wind up having uh, morbidity for the rest of their life, uh, the long COVID, or they'll wind up having mortality rates were increased where people died. And is that equitable, that the idea of running commerce was ahead of keeping people safe in a community? Julie, you're living this. Give us a little bit of a perspective about, does it feel like you're in an equitable circumstance, the way that, the, that it's been responded in New South Wales?
4: Um, I think it's been hard. I think, as in grasping that concept between, essentially it's about commerce or economics versus attitude, Right. Um, the, the 70% of the um, outbreak is actually in, a, in an area of Sydney, which we call the Southwest of Sydney, which is um, lo- lower in socioeconomic um, demographics, um, highly cultural, and um, probably only 35% of that population speak English. So therein lies so many cultural issues. Um, you, pu- you put a message out there, to lock down, stay at home in in a society where it's all about family and visiting each other. And then you have a language barrier. It's, it's really difficult. And then on top of that, you, you put in the army to help control um, compliance and you have a- um, can, I, can you
0: just help, help me here? Hmm. So, My understanding when the army goes in that you're close to being a failed state. So the the general government systems couldn't work. You had to go bring the army to go respond to this this emergency.
4: Yeah. I think we're we're told that the um, army is there to support the police system. Um, And, look, there's varying viewpoints of it. I mean, I have mine. Mine is more about triggers, triggering that community where a lot of them come from war-torn countries or generations that have come from, you know, areas of challenge like that. And then suddenly you have um, people in uniform, like army uniform, knock on your door, simply to ask, you know, are you being compliant? Are you staying home? Um, triggers people. Um so, so that's about the attitudes. Now is that the best way to manage the outbreak at the moment? I'm not sure. I mean um, Ten months ago when we had, um, actually eight months ago when we had an outbreak in the northern beaches, which is my area, which is more higher, higher socioeconomic, um, there wasn't these issues. We, there wasn't so much a language issue. There wasn't so much an anything issue. To be honest, we were just left on our own and had to deal with three weeks. Whereas this has become a, a big outbreak and a lot of attitudes are coming out. Um, and um, I, I don't know what the solution is. You know, it's, yeah. compliance is a big part of it.
0: Um, I, so I'm going to put, to put up there about the compliance thing because, guys, I find this really interesting because what we've got here is this nice little microcosm of inequality from government messaging, government policy. I'm going to go down to Florida and I'm going to go to Texas At the moment. Okay, well, we'll get back into the States. But when you know, and you mentioned an outbreak that took place and it was in the upper socioeconomic um generally multi-generational um anglo-saxons that messaging and that that worked. so there's like oh we'll, we'll use an equal message to a different cohort of people mm. in different settings mm. and it's fundamentally failed now i'm sure that university papers are going to be written in the future which was it was an inequitable response from the government because they used an equal message in which was not contemporaneous to the circumstance that it was being applied, which, which to me would suggest that their playbook of disaster response hadn't been well resolved because they hadn't tried to work on the future problem of what happens if we use this same messaging to people who don't understand that messaging? What happens if we use the same, same idea of isolated home, which might affect two economic units, two adults in a household, but when you have larger larger communities, you've now got 10 or 15 economic units in the household. That means they're going to be reluctant to come forward because there isn't a support package to give them economic relief to stay at home. So it would be very easy to write a paper today that talks about how this was an inequitable response, and therefore they were not a equitable government that planned the playbook of how they would respond. Do you you think that's and, yeah. and that, to me, is interesting because that little microcosm where you say, oh, there's a perfect example of inequity. We used yeah. equal messages but in the wrong setting. Yeah. Now, I want to go to Texas because in Texas, you've got a really interesting thing. You've got a federal government layer that says, let's go get FEMA to go put injections in people's arms. You've got a governor level at a state level who's saying masks should be, are now illegal. You know, kids at schools can't be using masks. We've got the Delta variant now infecting more, children, more young children than it is adults in percentage of population in infection rates. And you've got these worlds colliding. John, you're sitting across the border. You're, your family background is from Chicago. Do you look at this in dismay and go, this, is, this shows that the software of how our government systems aren't there or is there a device in the American constitution where the president can override the governor
5: in a state of emergency? What are my thoughts on this? Um, I've been kind of listening to everybody as this is going along. Um, and it, it, like the whole thing is subjective. Uh, like there, there's no way to quantify any of this. Uh, and, and, and then you even throw in, you know, so we've mentioned equality, we've mentioned equity. But you know, there's also fairness that you know th- th- that plays into this as well. Like you can have equity, but is that fair? Um, yeah. It, it, to your point, you know, like I'm I'm sitting here. I'm what twenty five kilometers from the U.S. border, but I can't cross it and go visit my brother. Unless mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, but. Uh, a U.S. citizen can cross into Canada and hang out here for vacation. So I, I struggle with bringing anything coherent to it because it's just there's nothing about this that yeah you know, like I see we're all trying to solve something that's subjective and it's like squeezing a balloon. As, soon as you, you you squeeze it in one place and it pops out somewhere else and it causes a problem elsewhere um yeah i I, i'm sorry i'm not answering your question because you're doing exactly you're doing exactly what we need to have the courage to do
0: dilemmas need us to stumble around them you know designers are comfortable in being uncomfortable we don't need to know the answer. It's not like we're pundits on a on a Fox News show where we have to answer everything with a, def, a you know definitive answer. A designer yeah. is comfortable in being uncomfortable, or maybe I, I should I, say I, confident I, in being uncomfortable. I
3: talked with your, your point, John, about you know different people at different points of view. Yeah, is is the issue, right? Because absolutely, what what might feel like equity to one person might feel not equitable to another person. And mm-hmm. you have different governments, different populations trying to figure out what they believe to be equitable. And then, and this is where I think it gets tricky, you know, getting back to the issue in um, part of uh, uh, Sydney, is that then you begin to impose your view of what is equitable on somebody else. And that, that's where it's problematic. Oh, it's yeah. And, and you can even go about that process. With
5: 100% best intentions, like thinking that you're doing something fantastic, but you're stomping all over somebody else's values or opinion or 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 or. or. So like like this is this is a messy pile that like I just I struggle because. It, it, it mm-hmm. use the skiing analogy I, I feel like i'm skiing through trees right now and all i see are the trees i don't see the path through the trees at all yeah. and you know, so i like all i can do is scream tree right now <laughs> as opposed to get <laughs> to
3: move forward Yeah. and it's, it's especially problematic when we're dealing with something which is life and death like covid because you know if it comes to a t-shirt I kind of like Mark's t-shirt and, and but maybe Julie doesn't. And, but it doesn't really matter. Okay, yeah. because it's just a personal opinion and it's just a t-shirt. But when it comes to COVID and should my kids wear a mask, it's life and death. And so mm. it's not just my opinion anymore. It's something that I really care about. And, 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 and I, I, I might be driven to violence as some have been around, around expressing that opinion. And I think that's where it becomes particularly problematic. Absolutely. And I,
0: think, I think some of this. Uh, I, I I love how we go and approach, say, um, IT security risks and things like apps. You can't have one piece of the app which is a little bit insecure, and then have the platform that it's on which is totally secure. You, you you've got you've got a breach there, and and I suppose that scenario I was bringing up in Texas is that you've got at a federal level let's go and make sure everyone's had the jab so that they're safe it's a universal we want you to be safe then you've got somebody saying oh well the other you know suppression devices as uh, forms as masks we're going to say no you can't do that and this morning I read in a in the in the newspapers that the schools who have been told that they couldn't get the children to wear masks have found that they do have the right to say what the uniform looks like. And now they're making the mask part of the uniform. It's not a device to stop the virus. It's now just part of the uniform. And going, this is crazy. It's fashion,
3: fashion, fashion to the rescue again. <laughs>
2: so I wonder, how, so, I wonder how, how different this would be. Sorry, did I interrupt Mark?
3: Okay, go. Okay.
2: I wonder how different this would be if you could see the virus. I think a lot of this has to do with beliefs and ideology and trust and yeah, understandable science. But literally, I wonder how different this would be if the virus was visible. If they were just little particles, little purple things like heading Chickenpox. The... Like chicken pox. <laughs> well, I don't mean vi- I don't mean vi- I don't mean visual. I mean visual in the air. Yeah. You know, I mean, visual, like, oh, here comes the virus cloud at me. I better put my mask on. I just think it'd be very different. And I just, you know, and the reason I'm saying that is because I wonder what's driving this, uh, what I'd call a disbelief in the science. I mean, it's a virus. It's not a political entity, right? It's, it's a virus.
5: It, it's, it's, let's take something a, a little bit simpler, even like allergies. Some people can have an allergic response to food or something like that, and it'll just make them queasy or give them the sniffles or not feel well for a couple of days, and other people will have complete anaphylactic shock and possibly die. Now, and if you, you a person that has uh, the issues that they're going to die eating becomes something that everybody around them needs to be aware of but if all they're doing is getting a little bit ill it's not quite the same thing so it's i don't know, like you say if you can see it or if they're, they're if they're as soon as you cross into that percentage of people that are dying from covid which we all go oh but that number is quite small and then we and it's easy to shrug it off and move on until it happens to you or happens to somebody that's close to you. And then, it, and then it's urgent. So. Yeah. And Dan, I think uh, if we go think of um,
0: filmic treatments that are done, the series Stranger Things, where they had two worlds. And what they did was they had like these floating particles that were when they were in the upside down world. There was always this airborne material which uh, told you, "Oh, we're in, we're in that strange state. We're not in the normal state." So, so you know, we're having visual identification is such an interesting thing. I think there, there was actually a project I remember you talking about at the conference, which was to do with the um, gauge in a early model electric car. Of how did you get people to to go from wanting to be foot down to the floor into how do you actually conserve the battery so so you've had experience in these visual devices that help then people actually change their behavior Was oh, yeah,
2: visualization, visualization will make a big difference and yeah it will change behavior but again you've got this ideology of this belief system that's difficult to crack i mean why would you not believe in a virus because you can't see it, because you don't mm-hmm. understand science, because you think you're not going to get it, and you think you're immune. I mean, why would you not? Um, why why would there be that disbelief or this retaliation against something as simple as wearing a mask? Not that anybody wants to wear the mask, although some people do look better wearing a mask. But why would why would there be such like a um, uh, uh, in some cases hostile retaliation? against wearing a mask when the virus may be present. And, and I
1: think
0: there's a, an idea virus. And so Seth Gooden there. Thank you for that idea. Um, so the idea virus is a very interesting one. Simple answers to complex situations is a trap that a lot of humans fall into. It's like a programming trap. What we want is a really simple answer to a complex uh, circumstance. Now, we used to do that. We draw maps and we'd have these maps, which was, oh, we're not sure about the seas over here. So we're told that there were dragons and monsters in the seas, So people would avoid it. It was a simple answer. We didn't have to explain weather patterns. It was a simple answer. Sailors don't go there. They stay in these coastal waters. And we still have that storytelling, which is a really simple answer to a complex circumstance. Harry, no doubt at some time during your design career, you've had to go through and deal with people who are trying to resign themselves to the simple answer to complex circumstance. How do you actually open up the vocabulary so that they understand that there's more considered answers that are needed to a complex circumstance?
3: Oh my gosh. Oh, that's, that's, um, that's such a difficult question. So, well, so, and sometimes as, as Dan pointed out, it's never simple. As Dan pointed out, um, you know, as designers, we can help to visualize information and make things clearer to people. And that, that's a, a great talent strength gift of a designer, is to be able to communicate. Um, and so sometimes that's what we do. We communicate how the product works through its design. We try to uh, make the affordances clear. But sometimes we have to take the opposite approach, which I, I, I find kind of interesting, where instead of trying to show the customer, the consumer, how the product actually works, we just ask them how they think it works, what, what they think is going on. And then we, <coughs> we design the product to, commu- to, 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 to fit with their worldview, of how things work, Mm -hmm. and that makes it easier for them to understand, even if their mental model is not scientifically correct. We put that to one side and we explain it in their terms so that they can engage with it and so that they will buy the product. We do that for commercial reasons, and there are lots of examples of products and services out there where the explanation to the consumer is a little bit different to how it actually works scientifically um but that's more successful commercially and so perhaps what part of our problem here since we're going to let me circle back to covid and some other equity issues is that too often the conversation has been owned or controlled by experts the scientific expert in the cdc or the communication expert in sydney rather than going back to the consumer the customer the citizen the 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 person in that community and asking them how does this work how should we communicate to you so that it's so so that you can embrace it in your community and can be part of the solution
5: it's interesting that you've referred to that there
0: are some people who are what we might call messengers rather than the alt you know the uh, subject matter expert you know they probably live their lives in a lab. They're not known as communicators, they're not known as messengers, and so we then need to package it up. And that's a, a tremendous point. It would seem to me that the people who are those messengers are now getting drowned out by people who might be coming up and they're just professional messengers in there, you know, the pundits that want to get on programs. Um, Julie I think we're about to go leave you you're going to leave us very soon because you've got a pandemic related um, requirement you need to go do Um, have you got any final words for us about this before you need to go
4: no I don't I think it's always about attitude I I was having because I'm a very visual person I was trying to think like Daniel Dan was saying if you could see the virus how would you be I was like oh my gosh I don't know if I want to see this virus (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean,
0: actually, so then going to what Harry was saying, let's not go make it that, you know, terrible ball with all the spikes that the CDC came up with, the experts. Let's work out how we communicate it using something that feels like we can actually deal with it. I, I know that you've got a teenage daughter who's doing her final um, exams. You need to go get to her because her anxiety levels, if they're not high already, they will be at about five mm. minutes. So thank you so much for your time. Thank and you I ready, hope man. that the pandemic outbreak settles for you very soon. So going back, Harry, to the idea about the messengers and the experts, I talked about the playbook idea. You know, the, I remember days when there was organisations would have at least three playbooks. You know, there was the best case, the worst case, the mid case, before they'd gone into potential strategies that they had explored. And there was generally messaging done about all of those. I feel like we've got a just-in-time messaging system which is coming from the wrong people who haven't been able to work out how to resolve it. I know there's, uh, there's some ideas like, The the term driven by design took me 18 months to resolve. The term better future took me five years to resolve. And, and you know, these things, they take quite a long time to go get the inputs today, and you can speed that up by having more minds working on it at the same time. But I'm not sure that we're doing the best that we can do in getting messengers and communicators to help to solve this problem what we seem to be doing is daily getting the the least competent messenger giving us too much information and then we're at, at
5: data overload
3: yeah it's um it's 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 tragic to watch, to watch this um, unfold in in not just around COVID, but but so many so many other areas too and i was I was reflecting upon this. Why is it that we're struggling to communicate here? I, I think it's because of the uncertainty. like when when you could when you could take eighteen months to resolve um, a, a, a communication platform for your organization, there was <laughs> uncertainty about the communication, but there was less uncertainty about the um, the goal or the the facts of the of your situation. Whereas part of our challenge with, um, with COVID is that at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know what was going on. Um, and it's very difficult for a leader to say, I don't know. Um, I really appreciate it when John said, I don't know. That's a sign of a great designer. We say, I don't know. But political leaders and medical professionals in particular a train to never say, I don't know. <laughs> it's not good for your career. But the fact is, when this pandemic launched, we didn't know. And right now in the United States, we're facing some s- similar questions. We're not sure whether or not it's appropriate to get another booster shot, for example. We don't know. And, and, be, and be, because the, the audience is not... Because the, the, the people relaying the message are not comfortable saying, I don't know and the audience is not used to the idea of people in authority saying, I don't know, we end up with a communication breakdown. So if if we were to put aside all of our issues around COVID and and, 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 and other catastrophes catastrophes that we're trying to wrestle with right now, perhaps what we do need is kind of a very basic curriculum (laughs) that would start off in middle school, where we all begin to acknowledge at an early age that I don't know, and that nobody knows, and we're going to collectively figure things out, Then, <clears throat> and as, as, as we advance in our education, we would then become more comfortable with the idea of Bayesian probability and statistics, which suggest that you, you can have a lot of data around a topic, but still not know for certainty. And that even if you have 95% certainty, there's still a 5% chance that the other thing will happen. Yep. And then we can have more honest conversation between leaders and experts and the people we're trying to change, their, whose behavior we're trying to change. Because we can all acknowledge, we don't know but we think this is the right thing to do right now, and we're asking you to help us do the right thing. We believe is the right thing, even though we cannot be one hundred percent certain at this point that it is the right thing. Yes.
1: And I think. So, it, well, I, I, I was just like uh, one of yeah. the keys. Sorry, go, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. So there's one thing I do know. One thing I do know is one of you is going to have to go first. Rock, paper, scissors, guys. Come on, like, how must you solve anything in life? Okay. Okay,
5: <laughs> okay you go. John, yeah. you go. Okay, okay sounds good. Uh, all I, what I was going to say is, like, there's another side to that coin of, especially when we're talking about issues that, get into life and death and that have more serious consequences is the part that we don't really want to know. We don't want to know the truth that's behind this. And, and, and this has become very prevalent for me on a daily basis and in a, a, on a completely different sub- subject. And I go to a dog park every single day. And at that dog park, it just got shut down because the town that I live in we're on the coast, and in Richmond is actually on a couple feet below sea level, and we have dikes all around uh, the island that, that we're on. And they're going through the process of lifting those dikes by 10 feet. And so now, all of a sudden, it's right in our face. Yeah, you know, We can't go to this dog park anymore, and people are completely up in arms. But then you don't look at the idea that what they're doing is protecting us from something that's in the future. When in the future? I don't know. There's the I don't know. But the truth that we don't want to address is, is what we seem to be avoiding. And that's like, so on, you have two sides of the same coin of I don't know, and I don't want to know <laughs> at the same time.
0: And and it's interesting that
5: and I find language
0: is one of the interesting manipulators that happens all, all around the world. And mm-hmm. so, so a word that is used in one Anglo-Saxon country in English is has a totally different meaning in another one. I've noticed the word truth is something that uh, that has been co-opted by people who come from belief systems, not from science,
5: mm-hmm.
0: and so. So when a belief system defines a truth, then it's not coming from a scientific fact. And it it would almost seem to me that the word truth is now inoperable in discussion in the United States. What you have to do is talk about scientific fact, not truth, because somebody who has a belief system will say that is their truth. And, and, and so I find that that's interesting where you've almost got, oh, we have to discount that word, it's no longer operative, because it's now got a co-opted meaning to it, it no longer means what it used to mean to us. And, and it's then working out those semantics of then you're saying, well, scientific fact is probably a little bit harsh, Harry, we need to get the communicators and we need to find out what's an alternate word to truth, and scientific fact, which is which attaches to humans and they will understand it. And so, the linguistic base that I've had to build around Driven by Design across all of the different cities in the world and those different linguistic bases is I've spent the last 15 years building a language where all of you people in the different countries can understand me because I, I'd hit these cultural barriers. I'd use a term that was inert in Australia and the UK in Asia, but actually had references that goes back to Jim Co, uh, Jim Crow in the United States. And so I have to say, okay I've got to dis- I can never use that term again globally because that term is now poison in the United States. I've got to find a term which is not poisonous in the United States. And, and because we've now got this global communication, to me the word truth has been co-opted by people who want to actually do disinformation, because it's been really easy to give people a convenient answer to a complex problem and call it the truth. You know, we need a global effort to understand what a scientific fact is, because you can't... There, there aren't alternate scientific facts. There are alternate truths. So if I, I find... And that's part of the reason I've dug so deep into an examination around the COVID responses is because I think it's actually an inequity to society, the way that this is performing. We can take the concepts out of this and then apply them to the Black Lives Matter. You know, it was totally inappropriate that a police force believed that it was half reasonable that an officer stood on a guy's neck. You know, like Floyd, other police officers should have come up and pushed him off and said, that is actually criminal abuse. But the software was that it was kind of okay. It wasn't abhorrent. And we need to understand about how those those you know grey areas between what's acceptable and what's unacceptable that we actually can uh, talk about them and work out how to decode them because it should have been that that was totally unacceptable behaviour, but it kind of was okay because he could have had a weapon he could and all of those coulders meant that it was okay to do something which was actually proven to be murder against somebody. That's a form of inequity. That's a form of social justice that doesn't exist. But sometimes we need to actually extrapolate and look at something which has a different construct to understand how do you apply it down to even things like Black Lives Matter? Because to me, what I'm seeing is that in the United States there's a huge amount of repair to bring people who are still suffering from the effects of slavery and then ways that economically people thought it was appropriate to keep them suppressed... We need to unlock them and bring them into this, bring them into this century, bring them into total enablement, bring them in, because I think, Harry, as we were discussing, we know there's actually economic leverage. When we took people out of slums and we, got, we gave them basic public health, the whole city was wealthier. When we take people out of feeling that they're marginalised, the whole city is wealthier. But that seems to be lost there. We we don't have that method to go actually elevate those people. We're still going to have stratas in society, but we have to elevate people up so that they're beyond a minimum level. The question is, what is that minimum level? Where's the floor on social equity? Dan, have you got any idea how you could work out what the floor on social inequity would be? Where is the point where it's acceptable? And you say, oh, yeah, we've got you to this level. Now it's up to you. You At least we're taking them out of the... You are drowning. Now let's let's see how you thrive. That's a difficult concept, isn't
2: it? Yeah, that's really tough as a generalized um, <clears throat> concept. I mean, every situation has to be so much different. Uh, but there are some serious issues underlying that thought. You know, at what point? Uh, at what point are some people more equal than others? You know at what point are some what seems like horrible actions justified in that person's mind, like you said, well, does he have a weapon? Well, you know that doesn't mean you you shouldn't restrain someone properly, but there could be any number of things going on in that person's mind that are just wrong um, but not to that person,
0: yeah so- and. Uh- and, you know, I've, I've heard some of the discussions of, uh, around Black Lives Matter, the way that some people were responding to those protest movements. Well, White Lives Matter, my grandfather, and you're going, okay, well, your framing was that now you're feeling impinged because some of your cultural heritage is going, but maybe that's the cultural heritage that we need to stamp out because it's bad software for our society. You know, it's a, we've got to upgrade that up part of the operating system because that's just wrong. How do we get to that decision It's wrong? Ronnie, I'm going to go to you because I've noticed that you've done something in this call that you often don't do. Your head's been down, you've been writing notes and you've been quiet, which must mean your mind is working and you've got lots of thoughts here. We're going to go through a wrap-up in a moment soon, guys. But I'm going to hit Ronnie. Give us a brain dump of what you, what's been going through your head.
1: I was picking up on um, a few things that people were saying, you know, Carrie, you started and brought up the word education, and I was drawing a thought bubble that just puts education in the middle. The problem with education is which education system are you going to use, right? But if you just think of education just in its abstract form education leads to language and language leads to access to information, which leads to empowerment to get work, which leads to financial knowledge and being able to have access to money and wealth, which leads to um, equal opportunity, which Mark, you started the whole discussion with, you know, bringing up that word equal opportunity. And that also puts health and healthcare and access to healthcare knowledge around health and healthcare. Um, We use a cleaning lady in the office, she's Hispanic. She will not get the vaccine. And I've had long conversations with her and she has her reasons for not getting vaccinated. But to me, a lot of this just goes back to her access to information and education and and knowledge and just her her diaspora and what she's being exposed to. And I really feel for her because I feel she's being fed somewhere along the line misinformation. Um, But she's convinced in her world in her manner that she's right and safer and better off not being vaccinated. Sorry, I've gone in in to sort of bring her as an example. but I think education is very key to this. But as I said at the beginning, well, whose education system? And, and Harry, as you were saying, you know, educating people enough um, so that at least you can communicate, or they can be communicated to in a manner that they will then be able to interpret, right? And they will have the tools to be able to interpret that. So that was, that, that was just some of what I've been sketching down based on, on what people have been, um, saying
0: just yeah and, and and i'll come back and ask you another question but i'm i'm fascinated about the stickiness of alternate facts you know for some reason alternate facts ben, uh, embed themselves in people's minds and you, you can't get rid of them you know, it's like you can't leverage them out whereas if you gave them a scientific fact that doesn't embed into their mind, which Harry goes into that communication thing because generally alternate facts have been packaged up by a communication expert, not by a scientist. So they're meant to have receptors that they can attach to. And to me, that's really interesting. It's a bit like their knowledge stains. You know, I've never understood why people who do dyes in uh, dyes for clothing don't actually use beetroot as the basis of of every dye because if you get beetroot on a T-shirt, you can never get it out it's always a red stone that's there like whatever beetroot is it just sticks and then to me the alternate facts are like knowledge stains that they they get in and we can't work out how to get them out we need something like the old-fashioned borax knowledge borax to go get out the those knowledge stains but but this is now having a conversation now, which is well how do you actually deal with alternate facts how do you get how do you help the the poor um, uh, cleaner who is, Poor in her knowledge. I'm not talking about her socioeconomic. Poor in the knowledge that she's been fed because she's been given garbage knowledge. And it's how do you get that garbage knowledge out? People are welcome to have their own free thoughts, but they shouldn't be on a diet of garbage knowledge. And, you know, that to me is a very very interesting thing. How do we actually define what is garbage knowledge rather than acceptable knowledge? We used to have that. There's a a brilliant spotlight that I did with Debbie Millman where both of us are reasonably uncomfortable talking about the idea of um, how we go and curate messages, how do we then go and control messaging, how that used to work, and now that we've got the free flow with digital media, that it kind of falls apart. So we'll put a link into the spotlight with Debbie because... I was suggesting that censorship has always been part of the way that the publishing industry works. And what I found was I was using a term which was abhorrent to Debbie because she were, censorship mean meant something to her linguistically very different to me, which was it was just a way that we filtered uh, in, in there. So, so we'll put that up there because the junk knowledge is getting across to people and there doesn't seem to be any product stewardship over junk knowledge. We do have product stewardship over plutonium, but we don't have it over junk knowledge. Ronnie, what one other thoughts the, um,
1: up to you? But... Yeah, and one of the projects we're working with um, MIT on is that uh, it's a um, artificial intelligence uh, application that listens to talk radio and finds fake news in talk radio. In markets, it's all in three-dimensional spaces, really interesting way of visualizing uh, uh, information and bad information and then identifying people in the community who are influencers who we can feed factual information to counter the fake news too. So that, that's the essence of the uh, the project but through AI to be able to just scan talk radio and just find out well who is actually, giving out false information and how how strong is their message or how powerful are they in their influence uh in the community and how do we then actually counter the message and and allow people to then be able to give in, be given different points of information and make their own minds up as to what they actually believe in
0: yeah i think uh, that's a fantastic project Because what it does is it means that we're then getting knowledge about the garbage knowledge that's out there. I'm going to do a wrap up round here. John, help me out with your final thoughts about have we got close to understand some of the dimensions around equality and maybe some of the things that are holding it back and that if we actually took them as opportunities, we could grow. What do you think?
5: Have we gotten anywhere? I, I'm going to stick with what apparently has been the most brilliant thing I've said in a while. It's uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just uh, it, like the, the further. This feels like one of those discussions that the further you get into it, the murkier it gets, and you know, it, it's just the subjectivity and the 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 in, in, immutable progression of the human mind that it, just, it, it continually wants to change the reality around you. And that's kind of what we're fighting with right now, is we just we want to change this, but we can't. And and, and
0: what I love about the I don't know, Harry's picked up on too, but then a few town halls ago, we were talking about the speed of answers that experts were being asked. And it appears experts are meant to have immediate answers. And you said, well, I could give you the immediate answer. I could give you the right answer in a period of time, which is which fits into that. I don't know. Yeah. So, so I think we're all all in there. Dan, help us out your summary from what we've done. Is there anything that's burning that you think we have to go talk about or we got to that? I don't know, but at least we've
2: got some understanding. I'm thinking along those lines, I think we've all been Googleized in the sense that we want instant answers, mm-hmm. and there's so much news media that's instant, and there's email that's instant, everything is so instant, but science takes time, so I wonder if there's also a time element at play there where um, people, experts, may feel obligated, or they're being interviewed, obligated to give an answer even before they know, or I wonder if the truth gets there before the facts, because the truth doesn't take a lot of time uh, and we just expect instant answers we just expect and if we don't get instant answers we're a little frustrated or distrustful. so I think we yeah I think we've been googleized and I think that's a factor underlying a lot of the discussion that we're having here tonight.
0: Yeah so the kind of the google mission of do no harm well, was kind of undone by the very fact that they made the instant answer um, tool wasn't it?
2: Yeah, science takes time. You yeah, know, we may cool. not know, right? We may not know, like, like you know, I say, saying, we may not know, or we may not know yet. Um, and that's the acceptable answer in many circles.
0: So I, I love it. So John's got, uh, I don't know, you've got, we may not know. Harry, help us out as we go home here, because there's a theme here. What's your type of not knowing?
3: So, um, <clears throat> Well, I, I don't know, but I've learned something this evening. So, so that, that's, that's helpful, I think. I think I may have learned something. Um, it's kind of an, a, an, a slow-moving epiphany coming out of this conversation. And it's kind of a generalization of a topic that we discussed many months ago around COVID, actually, which was that this is a realization for each one of us that our personal safety depends on the health, not just of me, but of the people around me. And COVID has been a wonderful reminder. That's always been true, but COVID has reminded us of that in stark terms. And right now in the United States, we're facing another crisis because people are not being vaccinated enough. Even though the vaccines are available, people are not necessarily choosing to take them, like the person who works in your company, Ronnie. (laughs) And so what I realized is that not not only does my safety depend on the health of the people around me, but it also depends on the education broadly understood, the ability to understand the world of the people around me too. So actually, this is a force for equity. Uh, Education is extremely unequal in the United States because most education is funded locally, not nationally. Yeah. But actually, what, what the current crisis is revealing is that each one of us is vulnerable, not just because of the behavior of other people, but because of the education of the people around us. And that if we want to be safe, we must help improve the overall level of education in our society.
0: Awesome. Love it. And I, you know, I think the if I went and said, what was the nature of the last couple of centuries and the nature of the century that we're in now, I think this is century of what we add, whereas the other centuries, the last couple, were what we extract. Yeah. And that to me is a really, which is the me and we thing. It's a, there's a very interesting thing. It's actually the young people are trying to work out what do they add in a sense of community because they've had everything they've been brought up with has been the values about extracting. And so I find that uh, you often find that flip that happens between generations where the young say, but Dad, Mum, can't we add something? Because the whole language at home has been what they get, what they extract. So I find that very interesting. Education, you floored me on that one. Ronnie, final words. What do you think we need to know further about equity or is it that we don't know but I might know and education needs to be improved. And there's junk knowledge out
1: there. I, Is there anything I else? Think Harry, no, I think Harry really, really nailed that. So I'd just back up, you know, empowering people with access to education and knowledge. And that's, that's really... Yeah.
0: But, but which on. knowledge, Ronnie? Which knowledge? That's the question to me.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and, I say, and we'll pick that up in, a, in another town hall where we'll talk about which knowledge, because we used to be really good at which knowledge. Um, and now we've got really bad at which knowledge. So I think one of the yeah. things about democratizing information was that we actually didn't have any form of filtering process on which knowledge, which isn't a hard thing to go do. You know, the, the whole Google engine is based on the model of citations. It just was that the, everybody didn't participate in the citation model. And so people worked out how to hack some of the vulnerabilities in that citation model. Guys, it's been fantastic. Julie, I know she's left us, um, but one uh, I found really interesting there was just having this different microcosm of well, how is something not working uh, because of the in une- in or an unequal circumstance from knowledge and behaviours where they were using equal messaging, and you can just see systemically it's failed. And that to me is so fascinating because by looking at those and having those observations, we can then understand that maybe we can't use the same
5: thing cookie cutter everywhere. Thank you again for your time, everybody. Thank you. Thanks,
2: everyone.